News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Canada is among more than 100 countries that has pledged to end deforestation in the coming decade. It's a promise many experts say would be critical in limiting climate change, also one that many experts say has been made before and broken before. Britain hailing the commitment as the first big achievement of the UN Climate Conference, also known as COP26. It's taking place this month in Glasgow. And our European Bureau Chief, Crystal Gomancy, is in Glasgow and joins us now with the very latest from the conference. Crystal, good morning. Hi there. Some of the highlights so far, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking with other leaders about carbon pricing. What's been happening? Well, he was a part of a a panel discussion earlier this morning, sort of looking at what Canada has done when it comes to putting a price on carbon, the effects that it's had, and how the country reacted to it. Uh, And he also shared details about how that will be um, sort of increasing over the coming years, that it's not just a static price on carbon. That will help us get a handle on our greenhouse gas emissions. Of course, we do know that over the last couple of years, um, greenhouse gases uh, in the atmosphere have been rising. Not a ton, but they are going up, which is not what we want to see. And it's, of course, not the uh, idea of being a country that's a part of the Paris Climate Agreement. So he shared some details about how it's been working in Canada, what Canada plans to do, and how we plan to move forward. And that is what this uh, summit is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about talking about what you agreed to in 2015 under the Paris Agreement, but then pushing ahead. Okay, so this is what you promised. Now what's next? Bold new steps to get to that idea of 1.5, 1.5 alive. We hear that a lot, but it's the, the goal, and it's you know getting further and further from our grasp to keep the planets warming to 1.5 degrees at the end of the century. Uh, do you get any sense on what, how that's being received as far as what Prime Minister Trudeau is saying? I know uh, back here, uh, the Prime Minister, sorry, the, the Premier of Alberta saying, hey, wait a minute, we weren't really consulted on these promises being made. And, and this idea of Canada is really taking these steps to, to go after this industry in Canada. But if the rest of the world's not doing it, what's the point? Are you getting a sense from other leaders? No, that, that sort of, uh, that wouldn't necessarily happen here, right? Because everyone here is meant to be talking about how they're working to protect the environment. So a lot of interest, a lot of intrigue, a lot of um, curiosity about how it's working in Canada and the fact that it is working. Companies are paying the carbon price. It is having its intended effect. They are trying to come up with new technologies. We see companies all the time saying, hey, we're going to go greener. We're going to do it this way. It comes down to money, right? Will this cost me more? Will I have to pay more to the government? Or can I come up with the technology, look like a good guy in the eye of, you know, greening my industry? And that's the balance that we're seeing more and more is that companies, consumers, major organizations saying, listen, we're not going to wait for the government because then we're going to have to play by their rules. We're going to have to play their game. We're going to do it on our own. We're going to do it now and we're going to come out ahead. 
So that's more that what we're seeing. Um, we, we did hear him talking about the caps for the, the oil and gas industry. Of course, that is going to, you know, stir up a lot of reaction in Alberta. But by now, you know, the world knows we need to move away from fossil fuels. The premier of Alberta knows that. He was in federal cabinet at the time when we were talking about these sort of things, when we were talking about the Paris Climate Agreement, when we were talking about the Kyoto Climate Accord. So Jason Kenney, no doubt, going to have a lot of strong reaction, but it will be interesting to see how the rest of Canada reacts, how the oil and gas center uh, industry reacts, and what they're doing on their own to try to make changes. I know there's been a lot of talk about who is actually there, uh, leaders who are attending the summit, how long leaders are staying there. I understand there were some pre-recorded video statements uh, from Russians pre- uh, Russia's president, from Brazil's president, talking about deforestation. What is your take on, on even just the optics of who's attending the conference and how things are going? Well, the optics around Russia is an interesting one, just because given what we see with COVID-19 and the absolute skyrocketing cases, I think we'd all be having a very different discussion if Vladimir Putin was here and we'd be thinking, ooh, is this safe for, you know, these 30,000 odd delegates? Um, So, and he has said that it's because of COVID-19. Is that true? Well, that's what he has told us, so we're going to take that at face value. Some of the big polluters, some of the big countries we have concerns with, Brazil, of course, deforestation of the Amazon, uh, those are all issues. But for countries, for individuals to divert attention and say, well, you know, they're not here, so we don't have to do anything, I don't think that flies. I don't think that holds water. And I think the average person sitting at home is going to say, stop pointing to the other guy and say, well, he's not doing it, and, and tell me what you are doing. It's sort of that classic um, election campaigning, right? You don't talk about what you're going to do, you're talking about what the other guy isn't doing. Right. What's uh, What are your thoughts then on what happens next, or what will you be looking for as far as coverage next? I think this is actually a really interesting time. Of course, all of the leaders, all of the flashy photo ops, they'll be done. The leaders will head off there. You know, they stay for the first couple of days. And that's when the work actually starts. Negotiating teams get together. They start handling uh, everything in terms of, you know, how will countries work together? What is acceptable? How are, you know, those historic polluters going to come to the table and start dealing with, you know, the, the issue of the atmosphere and greenhouse gases? How are some of the developing countries is going to come up with plans to address what's going on now while still keeping their economies moving forward. This is when the real work begins. And if we'll actually see success from COP26, you know, we have to come up with, you know, we've been told by the COP president, there has to be more bold agreements. There has to be a move forward. That was the purpose of this. After Paris, every five years, they're supposed to come up with new aggressive plans to keep the planet from warming. Will that actually happen? Will they come up with a carbon plan? We don't know. They didn't do it really in the last couple of years when they've gotten together. Um, This will be the first one post-Paris after that five-year agreement. But there's already people saying, listen, you know, they're not going to come up with a financing plan. They're not going to do this, that maybe this is a failure. And so there will be a push to make sure that, you know, something positive comes at this summit. All right. Crystal Gumansing, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, we are talking international travel on the program today and coming up a bit later on in the show, Claire Newell is going to join us to talk more about Air Canada and their expansion to international, well, I guess bringing back international destinations where people haven't been going. That's our question of the day. Where's the last place you traveled and are you excited to get traveling again? Let's bring on Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, I was really happy to see this news, mostly because it's an awesome boost for the economy, but I've also been so missing uh, all of my relatives and friends that live far away that thought, you know, they might not see us for a year. And it's turned out they haven't seen us for two years, and maybe we'll we'll be going on to three years. Um, So that's all good. But my concern around carbon emissions and how much travel we all did before has me thinking that maybe in the future, myself and my family are going to think more efficiently around how do we travel less? How do we get more bang for our buck when we travel? Is there a way that we can like all meet up in one place rather than making several flights um, and huge trips in a whole year? Um, But, you know, right when the travel restrictions kicked in at the beginning of the pandemic, that's when all of that travel influencer culture hit peak annoying, where like consumption had no ceiling and social media was just uh, full of these influencer pics of people traveling to new destinations seemingly every single week and uh, posting pictures of themselves like on the edges of cliffs and this kind of thing and like showing like the peak of luxury all around the world. And I think like consumption just got so out of hand. And now uh, I hope that when people travel, when things open up in 2022, that people will be a little bit more cautious around that stuff and think about our environment a little bit more. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's possible, though. I have a, a good friend who went to Mexico on Sunday, and he keeps sending me pictures of the pool <laughs> just to rub it in. It's beautiful. It's sunny. There's this gorgeous pool. And I got to tell you, Raji, I just kind of want to get on a plane myself and go somewhere. Yeah, well, I am going to book a flight next year for sure. I think, you know, this, this last flight that I took would have been, hmm, I took a trip to California, which wasn't a big deal, but I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I never got to make use of that precious, there's this window where uh, kids under two can fly for free. And we only got to take one of our children on one trip and then the pandemic hit. And so we never got to use those free flights, which is too bad. But I have a friend who took a job in the middle of the pandemic in Madrid, Spain, because there are no tourists there. And another friend took a posting in Paris at the same time for the same reason, because they wanted to live in these you know, world-renowned cities when they were not overrun with tourists. And when I travel next year, they everywhere will be overrun by tourists. Uh, But yes, you better believe I will get one good international trip in next year. Yeah, and I think a lot of people uh, are are looking forward to that. Even if it's just, uh, I know people with the border to the United States opening up, what is it, six days from now, the land border, if you're vaccinated, yeah. you can go. I know people, uh, even with the testing requirements and that still being in place, uh, people want to get moving again. Yeah, I admire that. Right now, for me, I'm in no rush because wearing an N95 on a flight for, you know, 10 hours doesn't have me pumped. But travel with kids under these restrictions? No way. Like, I can I can definitely wait it out. And also, uh, for people with little kids who um, are still required to quarantine often um, for 
two full weeks when they get back from any kind of international travel. Um, that's like, that's what's required at my child's preschool, for example. Um, no way am I going to go for that. I'm not hanging around at home and not working for two weeks after a trip with her uh, just because I needed to get a little bit of sun. That stuff, I can wait it out. I can wait it out, Jill. But, you know, we haven't taken anything for granted the way that we have our privilege to travel. And in the last year, I have thought about that a lot. I've thought about, wow, we used to be able to just go to the airport and take a trip wherever we wanted. How incredibly amazing. And that golden era seems to be uh, on pause for long enough that I keep thinking of how lucky we used to be. Yeah, I think a lot of people looking back on those days. Raji, thanks so much. We'll talk to you a bit later on in the show. Sounds good. Thanks, Jen. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, some updated numbers show an even more grim situation. Updated information, it was released by the BC Coroner's Service, shows that the record-breaking heat this past summer in BC claimed the lives of at least 595 people. The largest number of deaths, at least 526, all recorded from June 25th to July 1st when we had the extreme heat. The deaths that occurred in subsequent weeks were attributed to injury that were suffered during that heat dome period. Well, let's bring in Troy Clifford, Ambulance Paramedics Union President, also an active paramedic. Troy, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Uh, What are your thoughts on learning that the numbers are actually higher when we're looking at the number of deaths reported during that time period? Yeah, um, I mean, it it just brings back so many tragic memories and uh, I'm not surprised, but, uh, you know, it, it was a, it brings back horrible memories for all of us. Uh, you know, the paramedics and dispatchers, that was, was described as one of the worst times in uh, their experiences over their careers. And I, I know that's true. And so it, it rekindles or re reminds us of how really uh, bad things got during that period of time, for sure. What do you say about changes that have been made or have changes been made since then, looking ahead to this coming summer, although it still seems like that's quite a ways away, but the fact that we likely will have heat waves again, are we prepared better to deal with that? I absolutely believe we are, and I believe that uh, we're on the right track. I mean, obviously, the minister uh, responded on July 14th and and put in place a lot of announcements that changed uh, primarily the governance model of the ambulance service with the new board that's been appointed, um, led by Jim Chu, who who knows very well how public safety and emergency management work. So I've had a lot of meetings and discussions and uh, collaboration on processes that we can put in place and a move more to shift towards that focus. Um, Leanne Heppel was put in as the uh, chief ambulance officer, and we've done a lot of good work since then um, on all the announcements that were there. There have been additional resources added and that. So we still have a long way to go, and uh, I'm confident we're on the right track, but uh, we're still seeing some of those delays, Jill, that, uh, you know, obviously the delays to accessing emergency call takers in the ambulance dispatch, but also we're still seeing those same shortages of ambulance of, out of service and uh, not able to recruit in. So we we still got a lot of work to do. I'm really happy with the progress we've made, but uh, nothing's quick enough for the what you describe as the what we're seeing still today. Right. And you make a good point in that we're talking about this update about the fatalities from the heat wave, but we hear from Ecom on any given weekend that there is that potential or people are being put on hold and there are delays when calling for an ambulance. Yeah. And, and that really is one of our biggest focuses, uh, working with the employer and, and the new governance model in the sense that 
um, any, you know, that's people's first access to emergency service. Sometimes they're only one and to experience that uh, is, is uh, absolutely unacceptable. And we, and, you know, I, I think there's acknowledgement of that um, and they need to do better with getting more dispatchers into the, and call takers into the seat so that we don't see those delays. Um, and I think that's probably the, where the system, if that doesn't work, then the system doesn't work. And, uh, that's fundamentally the access to emergency care um, or your, in your situation of emergency. And without the ability to triage quickly, um, you can't send an ambulance, you can't send the supporting help. So the whole system doesn't work if that, uh, if that fails. And I think there's acknowledgement of that, but nothing's coming quick enough. And it really, uh, it really does keep me up at night, and I know it keeps a lot of people up at night. And it's just not acceptable. And I know the minister spoke to that. Um, I know that the uh, employer spoke to that, BCEHS. And I have a commitment that they're working through these things and we're, we're meeting every day and discussing and coming up with solutions. But uh, they're, 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 they put the 30 extra dispatcher call takers in place. Um, they've got back-to-back courses going to uh, hire. We're hiring as many as we can. So uh, I'm optimistic, but I'm still cautiously optimistic. Uh, so is the problem in your mind then, and you mentioned that they have hired the 30 additional dispatchers, is the shortage with dispatchers and call takers or is the shortage with paramedics? It's absolutely both, actually. Um, you know, we're, we're, and that's why when you've seen the announcement, the 85 additional in urban and metro and then the other ones in rural and remote were paramedic additions. And, but, we, you know, we need to add, add resources to meet the call demand that have grown, particularly in in high growth areas, such as the lower mainland, Fraser Valley, you know, but, you know, Okanagan and other areas in Nanaimo, um, we're seeing growth across the province, uh, which is good for the province, but uh, we need, the, our, our services haven't kept um, in, in pace, but uh, it's also in our dispatch centres, and we, we just need to get more dispatchers. If you've got more calls coming in than you have people to answer them, um, it's really a simple, simple formula, so we need more bodies to answer the calls. And have things changed then as well as far as when we're looking at more rural parts of the province or or paramedics that are on call? Uh, there have been concerns about uh, making minimum wage in those scenarios, and you really only get the paramedic wage if you get called out to respond to something. Has that changed, and are you concerned that that model is not going to be attractive to paramedics? Absolutely. That's one of our biggest uh, challenges in rural and remote is that's our recruitment area for people coming into the profession. And we're not seeing that because of that precarious uh, $2 an hour model. Um, where it's changed is that the addition of uh, full-time ambulance work in or conversion of that, um, part of that announcement by the minister, but also what we negotiated, um, has converted over 400 positions to regular part-time or full-time, which is definitely a significant impact in rural and remote getting away from that but we're still seeing that secondary ambulance and a lot of the remote communities that are still relying on that model and that's really where where our gaps are in those areas still so there's still a lot of work to do in that area but to what i think we're in that transition right now between october and november to uh, all those spots being in place so this is a real um, important time for that transition to full-time and regularized work with benefits and wages so been a huge improvement and investment in those rural and remote and indigenous communities but uh we still have to deal with that two dollar an hour model that's still out there Um, and um, there seems to be a commitment from both the employer and 
um, and the, the new government that that model is, is not sustainable anymore. And we're competing against industry. You know, the medics in the industry can make significant private industry can make money. We're also competing against other professions, healthcare or public safety disciplines that can offer more than we are. And, and that's really come down to a supply and demand issue. If you can't offer people meaningful wages or benefits or opportunities, then you're not going to recruit them in. And, and that's probably a, one of our biggest focuses, is getting more people into this great profession. All right, Troy Clifford, we'll leave it there for this morning, but thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Joe. Always a pleasure chatting with you. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing on the news, Air Canada expanding the international flight destinations starting in 2022 as people get back to traveling. Let's bring in Claire Newell, Global BC travel expert, also the president of Travel Best Bets. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill, from... um Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I don't want to rub that in, but it's really beautiful here. (laughs) You know, um, this is all because of the fact that Canada, about 12 days ago, took that big step toward the resumption of international travel by lifting the global non-essential travel advisory for vaccinated Canadians. That advisory had been in place since uh, March of 2020. As you know, I chose not to travel. I took one international trip to settle my daughter in, in Arizona. But because that's been lifted, a lot of people like me are starting to put vacations on the books. And I think that one of the other steps towards the airlines really starting to beef up their flights is because of the fact that the uh, federal government has put in place that vaccination um, proof that you can now pull off of the BC Health Gateway, not just the BC version. If you go to BC Health Gateway, you will be able to pull off the federal version with the little Canada logo off of the dashboard. You're looking for that. Um, but because of that, as you mentioned, Air Canada has unveiled its summer 2020 schedule for Europe, Africa, the Middle East, India, and now some of the seasonal destinations include some really great places, Barcelona, Venice, Nice, Manchester, Edinburgh, Reykjavik, Iceland. There's also seasonal service to places like Athens, Rome, and Lisbon, which actually resumed in 2021 in a limited way, and it's going to return again in spring of 2020. Um, alongside a recently launched service to Cairo, Egypt. Um, I should also mention that WestJet has announced that it's going to restore service to more than 95 destinations across the airline's domestic, transborder, sun, and international network as of this December, Jill. So travel is definitely ramping up. I, I personally noticed it when I was on the flight speaking to some people First of all, the flight was full. It was the first time that many of the crew on board the WestJet flight that I was on said that it was a full flight. Many were Canadian snowbirds. Um, The other thing that was kind of exciting for many of the crew on board my flight was the fact that it was the first flight for many of them who have been called back after 18 or 19 months of being off work, some of which worked in the vaccine clinics. Um, WestJet did a contract with them, but now they are back. They're back in the, in the air. Yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting uh, to, to hear about that for sure. What was it like then using uh, the vaccine or the passport and going through uh, the airports and, and doing an international flight? 
Well, I did notice that the lineups were longer. I had been anticipating that, so I got to the airport earlier. I was flying on October the 31st, so that was only the second day of using that federal vaccine uh, proof, which was required for anyone getting on a flight in Canada. I found that very, very simple. The only bit of kind of chaos that I must say that I noticed was the fact that when I got to my gate, there was a QR code on the plexiglass where people were going to the gate and get gate information. And for me, I travel carry on only, so I had to show my passport details there. And there were some people, most of whom were a little bit older, trying to use a QR code for the first time. And it was to fill out a questionnaire for going to Mexico. What I would recommend is not to panic about that QR code. You can also get it uh, in a paper form in Mexico if you're really concerned. Like a lot of these documents, there are options. You can use an app, you can use a website, you can use a QR code. Um, but other than that, it was smooth sailing as long as you have the documents you need for travel. And for me, that was simply that federal proof of vaccine along with my boarding pass and my passport. All right, Claire, we only have about a minute left, but I wanted to also quickly touch on, uh, we knew the cruise ship ban was going to be lifted. Do you think that the advisory against cruising is also going to be lifted? Right, so for those people who don't understand what we're talking about here is that there, uh, the ban of ships has been lifted as of yesterday, November the 1st. What hasn't been lifted is the level four advisory to avoid cruising as a Canadian citizen. Um, yesterday, we heard that many uh, travel insurance companies, even though there is a level four warning, which really was the reason that many people were choosing not to travel, not being able to get travel insurance against COVID-19, they are now able to get that in Canada. But I do, I actually had expected the, um, the level four advisory to be lifted uh, on the same day that the ban on ships. Now, the, the, the ban on ships we knew was coming. It was announced in July. It, the ships aren't even starting until 2022. It needed to be lifted because we needed those ships to be um, scheduled to come to Vancouver waters. Otherwise, that industry for the, would have been the third a year in a row, and it would have, it's a lot of money for, for the Canadian uh, ports of call. So I, I think it's coming. Uh, I do think it maybe it, it's time. Uh, the cruise ships have been sailing for many of them for months now without incident and doing a great job over the safety protocols, Jill. All right. Claire, thank you so much. Have a fabulous time and we'll talk to you again thank soon. You. Thank you. Bye, Jill. Claire Newell, travel expert, also the president of Travel Best Bet. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, as you likely heard in the news, British Columbia is asking the federal government for an exemption from criminal penalties for anyone who possesses small amounts of illicit drugs for personal use. An announcement first made last April, the province has officially become the first province now to ask Ottawa for the exemption from Health Canada under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So does this go far enough? Joining us now is Guy Felicella, a harm reduction advocate. Guy, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hey, Jill, thanks for having me. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, uh, on British Columbia now officially asking for this exemption? Well, I, I mean, sure, it's, it's, you know, it's great. I mean, it, it stops punishment from substance users, but however, it doesn't, you know, alleviate the six people that died today or, you know, are continuing to die or, or our overdose numbers are continuing to go higher. 
uh, not lower. And so, you know, decriminalization doesn't doesn't address that. It's kind of like how I explain. It's like you know, showing up to uh, to a fire, uh, and instead of using water, you 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 let the wind try to blow it out. Um, you know, it's it's needed, but you know, it's not the most urgently uh, needed step, especially um, when you know people die every day. Uh, the Pivot Legal Society came out saying that it, the plan doesn't go far enough. And one of the issues they took with it was uh, some of the wording that was added later to this, to the request, saying that it's a cumulative threshold quantity uh, for people, uh, that the people under the age of 19 are excluded. And it's this cumulative quantity for people 19 and above. Uh, they were saying that, that that's onerous on, on the person who, who may be caught with illicit drugs. What are your thoughts? on the fact that it's it's all of all of the substances added together yeah i think you know when you're doing these processes or consulting with you know people with lived and living experience or or lawyers or pivot or whoever um i think you have to you, you know be transparent in the process you can't you know you have to you have to negotiate basically back and forth but the process should be included by everybody uh, at the end to get the results that are are beneficial to the people who are actually being punished by it. Um, you know, you either support decriminalization or you or you don't. There's no like kind of halfway. You're either in or you're out. Um, and if you obviously are in, then you see uh, the impact that it not only has on people's lives, but it also has an impact on people who get out of that lifestyle as well or stop using drugs or who have had an addiction to substances and go to recovery. You're still criminalized uh, later on in life uh, when you're trying to go get a job, uh, you're trying to rent a place. People look at that and they continue to bring it up. So obviously, um, you know, the thresholds, I think, where you look at 4.54 of grams per each drug uh, it becomes complicated because a lot of the times one person may make a purchase for, you know, five or six people that have pooled in with the money. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, if they did get caught with them, they would still be arrested. Uh, do you think it does anything then? And, and coming from from your history and your past, is the point of this to help people stay alive and eventually get help? Or is the point of this that people aren't ending up being arrested? What is the end goal, do you think? Well, I think, you know, it gives it's giving human rights back to humans, uh, for one thing, dignity, for sure. I, you know, even in, in, in my own life, like I was criminalized, not only just for using drugs, but I, I was diagnosed later in life with learning disabilities. So I was criminalized for that. We we just criminalize people uh, instead of supporting them. And, and one of the things, too, is that is this is that not everybody who uses drugs um, struggles with an addiction, but how everybody who does use drugs struggles with one thing that uh, stigma, uh, bad drug policies and laws that will punish you um, if you're caught using them. I've been I've been thrown in prison uh, jail years ago, uh, just not even for just having drugs uh, for having paraphernalia. That's not even drugs um, and thrown in prison for that. So believe me, I've, I've seen it come a long way. However, uh, sadly, it, it needs to do a lot more. And what was that scenario like then? You, being thrown in prison for having drug paraphernalia, how did that unfold? And then what happened to you when you got out? Well, you know, this is what happens, Joe. The re- revolving cycle of parole, prison, and probation and violations. Uh, you know, I was just stopped randomly by police on the street. 
um, obviously targeted as a substance user, had no drugs on me and had paraphernalia on me, was arrested for having those paraphernalia as a breach of conditions and thrown back in jail for about uh, six more months. And then when I was released from prison, I was dropped off at a bus stop with a welfare check homeless. Uh, you know, how is that rehabilitation? That's just straight punishment at its finest. And I know you've talked about this before. I've asked you this before. How did you then break that cycle? You know, just as long as that lineup is an insight to go and inject drugs, there's another lineup at nine in the morning and it's to go upstairs to the detox for it. You know, one, you know, numerous times I was in both lines. And uh, the last time I just knew that, uh, you know, I was either going to die in my addiction. Obviously, I wasn't, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a substance a social substance user, I'm uh, a user to, you know, uh, numb pain and get wasted. So uh, I went upstairs there and, and my journey began. And obviously, uh, a big part of my journey was uh, encountering a trauma therapist that uh, that really gave me the awareness, my relationship with drugs, and it really gave me the ability to understand new coping mechanisms. And that changed my whole life and the life that I have today as a direct result of all that. So just it's You know, that needs, I shouldn't be the one off. It should be the norm. And and so looking at this announcement, then uh, the the application to decriminalize, uh, I know some are calling it a good first step. What do you think needs to be done then in addition or along with this that would help people? We just need a, a direct targeted response to give people access to substances other than illicit drugs. Like, you know, whether that's to, go into a facility to have labeling on the substances so people absolutely know what they're consuming. And, or uh, also if people are struggling with addiction to have immediate access to, you know, detox and treatment services in the province. I, I mean, we, I keep hearing we are adding more, more beds in the province, but my question is, well, how many beds are already empty in the province? Because can't be full. Um, you know, those are, those are things that, uh, you know, we have to fix not only the whole system, uh, we have to fix, like, from ground A to ground Z, we have to go through everything and, and, and change it so that, you know, people who do use drugs, that um, we're trying to really repair 100 years of, you know, prohibition. And that's just not going to happen by making an announcement that drugs are going to be, you know, decriminalized. And then also, how long is the federal government going to take to actually implement this? the training that's going to be involved. We're talking years. We don't, we don't have any more time. Um, six people will die today, and that's somebody's dad, somebody's mom, somebody's grandmother, a family member, a friend, uh, a loss to the community. It's tragic. Uh, Guy, we only have about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you too, when you talk about your experience of six months in jail then being dumped off at a bus stop with a welfare check, had somebody said to you at that point, here's a treatment bed, do you want it? Would you have taken it? I would have definitely, listen, if somebody would have offered me that instead of, you know, going to, to prison, like, hey, we have, uh, you know, we know, obviously my background was using substances. Yeah, I, I would have taken it. They never offered me treatment. They, offered, they told me I needed to go to prison first, and then I'd have to figure it out for myself, um, which eventually I did. Uh, but unfortunately, in, in, in our society today, that kills people. All right. Well, Guy, we will continue talking about this for sure. But thanks, as always, for coming on the program. Jill, thanks for having me. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi.
All right. If you have ever driven to and from the North Shore in peak traffic hours, even not in peak traffic hours, you may have been stuck in bumper to bumper traffic. So, how do we fix the problem? That is what we are talking about now with show contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning again. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, when we hear about congestion, we often think, oh, cars, density, too many people live here. But that's not the sole root of North Shore's traffic issues. I talked to Mayor Linda Buchanan. She just penned this piece in uh, the Daily Hive about the issue. We've increased the employment over here on the North Shore and haven't necessarily provided the kind of housing that people who are working here uh, can afford and can live here. But we're also the gateway to the Sea to Sky Corridor. We have ourselves on the North Shore. We have multiple regional attractions. We've got three different ski hills. We have lots going on here. And we're also the gateway to the coast and to Vancouver Island. So we have a a number of... uh, of sort of factors where it isn't just people in who are currently living on the North shore that are moving about. It's people who are actually coming here for employment or recreation or moving through here to get to beyond either to the East and the West. And we saw during the pandemic that people are making even more use of the North Shore's recreation, so much traffic on weekends too. So this isn't just, you know, rush hour weekday traffic. And we know that a new bridge is not coming anytime soon whatsoever. Well, Mayor Buchanan, she's just published this piece in the Daily Hive. It lays out a possible plan for rapid transit. Traffic can be very unpredictable. And so we we need... Um, you know, we need rapid transit. It's it's reliable, it's fast, it keeps people moving. Based on the, uh, the benefits assessment that we've done so far is that we can, we can forecast that, you know, it'll take away 50,000 auto trips. That then again, provides room on the road for the very people who need a car to do their job for goods movement. And North Shore has seen this before. In 2018, uh, West Van residents in particular pushed back very hard against rapid transit. Those people were really just worried about change, any change to their neighborhood, Jill. And I think what's different here is that the mayor doesn't even need to appeal to people's sensibilities about climate or their children's future. Um, and that doesn't even always work to to point out that this is better for climate change. Um She's focused on the economy. You know, a lot of healthcare workers, for example, they're commuting from far away from places like Abbotsford. And eventually the North Shore's traffic will be so bad that people who are coming from really far away will go, oh, you know what? I need to transfer closer to home. I can't I can't come in all that way to the North Shore. But Mayor Buchanan, um, she says that the only way out of this problem is to embrace transit and active forms of transportation. So last week there was a legendary transit traffic congestion all across the North Shore because of a pothole, one single pothole, and everything was at a a standstill. Well, the city was able to look at its e-bike system use numbers during that period. They skyrocketed. So people were able to go, okay, well, I obviously can't drive in this mess, but I need to get home. I need to get here or there. And they jumped on on the e-bikes. And that was because of reliability. They knew these e-bikes work. And for context, the Lionsgate Bridge currently averages about 70,000 vehicles daily, while the Ironworkers uh, Memorial Bridge sees about 123,000 vehicles daily. Here's Mayor Buchanan again. 
you know, there's no silver bullet here. There's a multitude of solutions that need to be put in place. And so North Shore Connects, which is the, the three local governments and the two Indigenous governments on the North Shore, are working really hard together to, A, do what we can do at a local level, which is within our purview of, of what we have to do as local governments. So we have the Lime e-bike share, you know, uh, making sure that our that our um, staff are coordinating around our cycling networks, um, freeing up road space for other uses. So creating those bike lanes by taking away some, some of the public space that's always been allocated to single occupancy vehicles. And so providing, providing those um, other means and ways. And so rapid transit is sort of the next uh, iteration where we can rapidly move people, um, you know, to already built out infrastructure. So whether it be Metro town and then move people from the, from East where people are moving out to live, they could rapidly get to say Metro town and then continue on that rapid line to get to the North shore. So when she says rapid transit there, she's uh, suggesting that first it's bus rapid transit and then SkyTrain. Obviously, a lot of money is needed for this. And uh, the mayor is looking to North Shore businesses uh, to deliver the message to all levels of government that the North Shore needs to be next when it comes to transportation budgets. But if you've spent any time on the North Shore, Jill, you know that it's just a, the traffic is a mess and it really does need um, a solution like this. Uh, yeah, and certainly it's it's been one of those ideas that's been floated so many times, but I think it, you nailed it there. It's the money, and it comes down to who's going to pay for this because whatever type of red, rapid transit is decided on, it's going to be expensive. Yeah, it's going to be very expensive. And, you know, there's been a lot of not in my backyard uh, type of mentality by some residents. And I mention that because, uh, you know, it's in all the comment sections of pieces uh, that are written about rapid transit on the North Shore. But something has got to give. Uh, we can't just keep creating more and more roads and, and dream about uh, impossible bridges um, to the end of time. We have have to do something and it's like she also mentioned there with there's no silver bullet like this also is going to require that people uh take uh e-bikes seriously uh that they use either the public ones or you know get into biking more themselves in the last couple of years even during the pandemic we've seen more bike lanes open up on the north shore and sometimes they're not as busy as they could be uh, you see the roads filled with cars but not always with bikes all right, uh, Raji, thank you for this so much. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, in Surrey, the RCMP are using a new fixed radar system, and it is called Black Cat Radar. So how exactly does it work? Joining us to talk more about that is Constable Sarbjeet Sangha, an RCMP officer in Surrey. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Thank you for having me. It sounds very New Age and James Bond-like. So how does this actually work? Uh, so this black cat radar is a leveraging technology, uh, which we've been using since 2020. And we've had about 30 deployments so far. So how this works is that uh, an area that has either been identified by citizens of Surrey, that whether they have complained that there's a lot of speeding vehicles in this area, or we have seen it ourselves. So we set up this black cat radar 
in that area. And it's usually depending on how busy this area is. Um, most likely we will deploy for about seven days to gather the uh, data. And it um, records um, vehicles that are traveling in both directions in that area. It will count how many vehicles are um, within an hour, two hours. And so it gives us information on um, how many vehicles are traveling on this road and how many of them are excessive speeders. And it will also give us times of the day when that speeding happens. And so to be clear, though, people might hear this and think, oh, this is photo radar coming back. But this is not photo radar. Absolutely. This is completely different. It does not take any picture to any images, and it does not record any license plates either. It is specific for numbers of vehicle on that uh, particular part of the, uh, of the road, and it collects the so number of vehicle and speeds of those vehicles and particular time of the day. And so then does the RCMP take that information and then decide if they will put enforcement or increased enforcement in that area or what do you do with it then? Yes, absolutely. You know, we have been doing intelligence-led policing and this is one of those examples where we're using the black cat radar. Then we have those certain areas where, um, as an example from our media release, the area of 12500 block in 104, within seven-day deployment, uh, we had 2,000 vehicle that were excessive speeders. So we set up in that area. We uh, deployed our resources uh, and that these resources are working efficiently, effectively. We are targeting in a certain part of the day when we know from this intelligence we gathered, then people are uh, driving in excessive speed. Right. So looking at that example, then, like you said, so uh, last month, putting it up in the 1200 block or the 12500 block of 104th Avenue, uh, a 30 kilometer an hour zone, and you caught or there were 2000 excessive speeders uh, that were flagged, I guess, using this technology out of about 34,000 vehicles. That's correct. And so what would happen then? You would put up, what what would you do then in response thinking, okay, well, there were 2000 excessive speeders. What do you do next? So we deploy our resources from the community response unit. Our members will be out on the road and uh, they will catch those speeders. And we had one actually yesterday. Uh, this person was driving 109 kilometers per hour in this area. So this person's vehicle was impounded and they were issued fines under the uh, uh, criminal code and the traffic. So they were doing 109 kilometers in a 30 kilometer zone. That is correct. <laughs> that's, so that's, uh, excessive. that's excessive yeah. speeding. Absolutely. Uh, do people, can people see this then, or when a driver is going through an area where this radar is set up, is it something that they physically see, or do they know that they may be, may be clocked on this thing? They will not, and that's what the good part about it, is that it's gathering intelligence without people knowing that they are speeding in this zone, and then when we have the data, that's when our officers are deployed to those intersections, to those areas. Yes, they will see our officers, and hopefully that is a deterrent in itself. Right, because that was part of the, the thing with photo radar in that while many people considered it a cash grab, uh, the question being is the point or is the, the goal to, to stop people and find them or to get them to stop speeding in the first place? The, the goal is here for us to actually first gather the intelligence. 
if somebody has flagged this area as to be an excessive speed area, is it actually true? So when the intelligence is gathered, uh, that gives us the answer whether there is excessive speeding going on in this area. And then when we do deploy our enforcement, the first is to actually have the people slow down. When they do see a police officer, do see a uh, police marked cruiser, they slow down right away. And guarantee you, when you're driving on the same road next day, you're going to be thinking, oh, maybe there might be a police officer standing there. I might, I might slow down. So this is a two-factor. Yes, you will get a ticket if you are stopped by that police officer, but it also works as a deterrent for the rest of them because police can't stop every single vehicle that's speeding at the same time. Right. And again, for people that might have privacy concerns, you mentioned this doesn't capture images. Does it store any specific information about the vehicles? That is correct. It is not taking pictures of any of the vehicles or their license plate. It's just gathering information on how many vehicles and how many of them are speeding. And what are your thoughts then on, is this going to be expanded? Or if you had, say, people in the neighborhood saying, can you please set this up here? We're having people whip by our homes constantly. Is it the kind of thing that will be specific to requests? Uh, definitely. We encourage our community to reach out to us on our non-emergency number. And you can also send email to our media proxy. If you have concern about any neighborhoods in our city, we take that into account and we will deploy the Black Cat radar system. Uh, how many of these systems do you have? We have number that would uh, sufficiently work in city of Surrey. All right. We'll leave it there for this morning. Uh, Constable Sarbjeet Sangha, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day.